You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Hi, and thanks for listening to this podcast about pyrexia of unknown origin, or PUO or FUO as it's otherwise known. My name's Ros Benson. I'm a rheumatology specialist trainee in the Mersey region, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Tom Fletcher. Tom is an infectious diseases consultant in Liverpool. And perhaps, Tom, I could get you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your role, if that would be okay. Yeah, no, thanks very much, Ros. So, yeah, I'm an infectious disease consultant um, in the NHS in Liverpool and then also work in the the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine here, which is where I do my research. And for this topic, you know, PUO or, or FUO fever unknown origin, that's something that we pretty frequently see in our NHS practice. Brilliant. Well, thank you. And I mean, Tom, so my experiences um, from working in a similar ho- in the same hospital as yourself, that the infectious diseases team are often involved quite early on in the journey of the patient with PUO because they're often preferentially triaged to your bed. So I guess this will give you a bit of a different perspective to when the rheumatologists become involved, because that's often a bit later down the line. So this is why it's really helpful to have this chat with you today. Um, so perhaps, Tom, can you start off with defining, what, how you, would you define pyrexia of unknown origin? Yeah, no, thanks, Ros. I think you're right that we do see people, you know, where we are relatively early because we're generally quite interested you know, in looking after cases of, um, of PUO. The other cases that we often get referred is regional cases where they've been under other specialties, often as an inpatient for a number of weeks with multiple different tests, multiple different antibiotics, and then they refer them to us. And again, we're often quite keen to take them over because they're often quite interesting and there's a diagnosis to find. In terms of the, the definition of PUO, the historical one was always about duration and then a fever above a cutoff of 38.3. So patients had to have that relatively higher fever and have it for a persistent time of about three weeks. Traditionally, that used to include with a week of inpatient investigation. Things for PUO have sort of evolved over time now. We've got better diagnostic tests, particularly imaging. And I think we all know the pressures the NHS is under. It's not so easy to admit somebody just for monitoring and watchful waiting for a PUO. And so that sort of time around having to have it for three weeks is a bit more flexible nowadays. So we sort of take it as they've had an appropriate first set of investigations for a fever. No cause has been found. And it seems to be persisting, really, uh, you know, more than a week or so. And then that's when we get interested that this is the case um to start start investigating so you talk about sort of the appropriate first line investigation so can you just briefly run through what that might be yeah so sure and you know i think that key thing is as we've discussed before is the the importance of that really detailed history and that's sometimes where i think you know historically and reputationally wise we spent quite a long time asking patients you know from the day of their birth up until now every part of their life journey and history but it is probably no you know incredibly important within within patients with a PUO and often where we add a bit of value around the history I think is clearly a travel history when you know related to looking for infections so we'll go into a detailed travel history with virtually every patient we see we want to see a sexual history which we think is really important too any history whether there could be zoonotic infections so contact with animals would be important and then the other factor that's sometimes missed is the medication history to really go into this to see if there could be a drug cause of this and that's not unusual when patients have maybe had a some infection then been treated by an antibiotic and potentially got a, a drug reaction and a fever afterwards. So we spend quite a lot of time you know, going over that. And, and also, you know, if they've come from another unit, potentially if they're post-surgical or they, they're thought to have acquired the PUO in hospital, we focus quite heavily on what's gone on before in their sort of patient journey, really. 
That's really helpful, Guy. Thank you. And I guess then following the history, when you're examining these patients and I guess sometimes they come to you as a newer patient or they've come from another trust, are there key features in the examination that you you think that perhaps others don't don't do as well as could be done or key things that you want to look out for? Yeah, I think so. So when I'm talking to my trainees about the sort of the PRO cases, I would say this is somebody who needs an MRCP-esque examination. So this isn't a focused quick examination on the ward round of that area. You need to go over them top to the bottom to really examine them closely and focus on slightly you know, difficult or, or, or unusual areas that you might not do in your quick focused exam. So we look at things like the teeth in detail to see is there any evidence they might have an occult dental abscess, particularly in patients who are immunocompromised. Think about sinuses. Make sure you have a good look for any stigmata of infective endocarditis, which is still one of the relatively common causes of a PUO. We examine them pretty religiously for lymph nodes in all areas, because obviously that's one of the differentials for a hematological malignancy. Look at joints, as I, you know, as I hope you'd expect us to. Uh, and then think about things like, have they had previous um, surgical intervention? Have they got foreign bodies? Have they got prosthetic joints anywhere, which could again be an occult source of infection? Other things that if we're being thorough, you'd look for evidence of prostatitis in men, and so that would require a prostate exam as well. But I think it's generally just a really detailed, thorough exam as if you're in your MRCP exam for every system. And that's kind of what we want and what we expect, really. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And and thoroughness takes time, doesn't it? And um, I guess, I mean, with my reading, about a third of PUO cases um, get found to actually have a non-infective cause. So in your experience, having seen lots of these um, people presenting like this, do you ever get what sort of um, features do you start to see that might give you a sense that this is going to be non-infective, perhaps earlier than later? Yeah, you're right. And obviously, you know, as infectious diseases doctors, we're looking for that infection pretty hard because that's what we think we can treat and manage. Historically, um, PUO had the rule of a third, is what I was sort of taught and what was in the textbooks that you know, a third of cases would end up having an infection, a third would have a malignancy, and a third would end up with... Um, you know, one of your causes, so an inflammatory cause that would need managing. And then there's the percentage that are factitious and those that you can't get to the bottom of as the bottom, maybe 10%. Uh, I know that adds up to more than one with that. <laughs> but that's the kind of figure that we look at. Um, so I guess when they get to us, you know, if they haven't been overseas, if they're not, you know, immunocompromised, and they've had, you know, a high fever with high inflammatory markers for a long time, and they've had adequate imaging to look for sources of occult infection, like a collection in the abdomen, they, they don't look like they've got any risk factors for TB in the lungs, and they've often had an appropriate course of broad-spectrum antibiotics, then we're starting to look at this person and think, actually, this doesn't look like it's an infection to us, and this may be more of an inflammatory disorder. Um, people look at the balances, obviously, around ESR and CRP and look at those trends related to the antimicrobials they've got, but often we get that clue that this doesn't look like an infection. Yeah, that's really helpful because my next sort of question really was to go on to say, when can we feel safe as a rheumatologist coming in thinking this is probably not infection we need to give some steroids and then often we have a bit of fear of immunosuppressing somebody who might have an occult infection and how can you you know what what can reassure us would you say obviously it can't be a hundred percent but is it a couple of blood cultures is it a, a normal transthoracic echo in these situations so you're right. So I think all those baseline, you know, investigations that we would expect to be done. So, you know, a basic set of blood tests, inflammatory markers, at least two blood cultures that have been done when they're not on antimicrobials, the transthoracic echo to look for endocarditis, and then that CT chest abdo pelvis, we'd expect to see 
no sign of, uh, of collection or infection of that or other diagnostic clues, which is generally what, again, I talk to trainees, that's what you want, a diagnostic clue to go towards something. I think we probably as infection doctors are, are a bit more relaxed about using steroids than potentially you are because we don't see people generally falling apart with infections when they're given some steroids. You know, there's particular risks around people who are immunocompromised, et cetera. But otherwise, I think the main thing uh, and where we really value that discussion with rheumatologists is that sort of MTG discussion to say, this is what we've done so far. We haven't demonstrated any evidence of this. We're thinking it's more of an inflammatory disorder and, and could this be a large vessel vasculitis or something else? And then the discussion we find about steroids is generally, you know, if we haven't got time because we think the patient is quite unwell with that disorder, we're certainly not getting better. That empiric use of steroids then is, I think, as you sort of highlight, best with a, um, you know, an MDT-based discussion between an infection specialist to say, we don't think there's any clear evidence of infection here. We're pretty relaxed about giving them steroids. And I think the other part of that is, if that's administered, and often if it's methylprednisone or something else, that's delivered in an environment where if they do get unwell because of the steroids and there is an occult infection there, then there's somewhere where that can be detected and treated too. So I think that's the other thing that we often do with patients that come to us is we stop all the multitude of antibiotics that they're on, knowing they're somewhere where we can we can then monitor them closely, get appropriate cultures when they're off antibiotics. And then if they get sick, we're happy to start a broad spectrum antibiotic to cover them in that environment. I think that's a really useful point in sort of using time as a tool, aren't we, in the diagnosis of these patients, which um, I think, yeah, is key in lots of conditions, isn't it? But particularly this, I think that's really helpful. Um, I mean, I guess sometimes these patients, they have a very long hospital stay, don't they, as we try and rule out various infections and then we look to think about inflammatory causes. If they're clinically quite well, do you ever manage these sorts of patients as outpatient? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, I think time is sometimes not on our side in hospital these days, is it? Because of the pressures of beds, our managers are not particularly encouraged to watch for waiting approach for patients that are quite well. I think once they've had a, you know, you can clearly differentiate, you know, PO, some people who look very unwell and need inpatient management and those that have ongoing fever, despite what seems to be a negative set of investigations. And often patients are pretty keen to be, you know, not in hospital investigators and outpatients. So I think once you've done that basic test, basic sort of set of observations, you know, of a patient as an inpatient, once they've had the key the key investigations done that have maybe drawn a negative and they've been off antimicrobials for a bit of time, it's relatively safe to, to let them become an outpatient investigator in that way. Sometimes we find it it's a bit harder to investigate as an outpatient because obviously tests often take a bit longer to, to be done. And yet they have to have, you know, as a PUO patient, if they are an outpatient, just a clear mechanism of getting access to care. And so often we give those patients almost direct access to us to say that, look, we think you're fine to go home, but actually what we don't want you to do necessarily is to have to come back to your a &E if you get another fever or feel more unwell. So sometimes those patients just contact us directly and we try and readmit them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So thank you. I guess with um, many of the treatments that we use for our patients, it results in immunosuppression um, and uh, of them and risk of opportunity, opportunistic infections. And with this patient group, um, how does your approach change to somebody like this presenting with a fever? You're right. I think it is quite different. And you know, people sometimes divide PUO patients into different categories. They consider, is this the classic PUO of someone who needs working up for it? Is it somebody who's immunocompromised? Because that is quite different. Is it someone who's got a clear travel history in a PUO? Because that, you know, opens up a different set of diagnoses. Uh, or is it one PUO that they seem to have acquired in a long hospital stay? And the ones that we're most cautious about are undoubtedly, as you highlight, those that are, you know, immunocompromised and having, you know, ongoing fever related to that. And those are the group that we're obviously more nervous about, particularly if they're hematology based 
patients are profoundly neutropenic, those that we you have to be a bit braver to stop all the antimicrobials in that setting when they've got ongoing fever. And obviously, if they are immunocompromised for whatever reason, it just opens up a whole gamut of new infections or fungal infections or others, uh, viral infections that can cause that PUO that you have to think about. So for me, you know, certainly all patients who are immunocompromised with a PUO really do need early engagement with an ID specialist. Yeah, well, that's a really useful take home point, really, I think. And and again, sort of just highlighting the MDT approach, which is crucial, isn't it, in these often complex patients. Um, well, that's really useful. So I guess, um, finally, Tom, any key tips for approaching the patient with a PUO that you don't think we've covered in our conversation? Well, so the key things, you know, I would say is that I think we highlighted at the beginning the importance of the detailed history and examination. And you have to keep repeating that for the inpatients, actually, because obviously their diseases evolve over time. And sometimes whilst they might not have had a key feature or, or symptom or sign at the beginning, you know, as you keep going over in hospital and people, you know, patients reflect on it and as their diseases evolve, that becomes apparent too. So that's another thing that we do is routinely give them, you know, pretty thorough history and examinations over the course of their stay. I think the other thing that we haven't mentioned that has probably changed um, PUO care quite a lot in the last decade is access to PET-CT. So traditionally, you know, obviously that was used for for cancer-based diagnosis at the beginning and and staging, and then about 10 years ago became available for PUO. And that, I think, has really revolutionised our approach to it. People have different approaches to when they use it, depending on their access to it. We're quite fortunate to be able to get PET-CTs pretty quickly in Liverpool, where we work, but it's probably better to do that relatively quickly. Some people try and wait and they say, well, we'll do that later after we've done all these other investigations and waiting. But actually doing it relatively early in that patient journey after you've you know, excluded some common things probably gets you to a diagnosis quicker uh, or to a biopsy quicker to get a diagnosis than leaving it till the last stage. So that's something that we think about pretty early on. Should we do a PET-CT here to try to get to one of this quickly? That's brilliant. Well, and I'd like to extend thanks to Dr. Tom Fletcher again for chatting with um, me. It's been really useful. Thank you. And I think that um, PUO is something that we quite often see in rheumatology and it's complicated as to whether or not it's um, caused by the underlying condition or as a result of treatment for underlying conditions. So this just gives us a bit more confidence in the management. But I think also the importance of conversation with our infectious diseases specialists within our area. So thank you very much. And I think if this has piqued interest for people listening, I'd recommend that you have a look at some of the spotlight on PUA resources on the BSR website. Um, There's a couple of webinars and some really good articles to have a read of there. And so thanks again for listening and thanks very much for joining us, Dr. Fletcher. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.